0: Every now and then I am tempted to just get up and say amen and walk out. But they're not ready next door for you to come get barbecue yet, so I won't do that. This first 90 days of the year, we have been making our way through... The New Testament. We've been reading all of the New Testament together. Um, We have finished that journey uh, this week. I hope that you have joined with us on that task. I hope you did not find it overly onerous. It was only about 10 minutes or so of reading a day. I hope you have found it informative and uplifting hope you have found it soul-nurturing to spend time in God's Word. I-, I hope that y'all have found time to talk with each other about what you have been reading, since we have all been reading together. Now, one might think that if I were to finish up and, and wrap up us, uh, uh, us reading the New Testament together, that the last sermon of that might be in what book? Revelation. That is what would make sense. And my question to you is, have you ever known me to make sense? So we are not in Revelation. We are in the book of Jude. The book of Jude, which is the next to last book of the New Testament. The book of Jude, which probably in your Bible only takes up a page. The book of Jude in which there are not even any chapter designations, only verse designations. Jude is an interesting book. It is written in the early days of the church. It falls into these writings, several of which we have in the New Testament, in which error and heresy and false teachings are starting to come into the church. And so leaders and apostles in the church begin writing against that, and that is what the book of Jude is. I actually contemplated reading the entirety of the book of Jude together today, um, as it is only 25 verses, but, but we won't do that. We're going to read the first four, and then we're going to jump ahead and read the last five. So we're going to read one through four, and then verses 20 through 25. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, (coughs) and kept for Christ Jesus. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Jumping ahead to verse 20. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we come before you this morning, we just pray that you would give us the knowledge, the strength, the fortitude to contend for the faith. God, I would pray that we would see the faith in each of us grow, that we would see the faith in each of us to blossom, but that we would be clear on that faith, and that when confronted with lies and false teaching, that we would contend for the true faith delivered to the saints once and for all. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Be seated. So it's often the case with uh, with New Testament letters and New Testament epistles. The author of the epistle is listed first. You know, when we write a letter, often we sign it at the bottom, right? But when they wrote a letter, they sort of signed it at the beginning so that you knew from the get-go who was writing to you. We all do that, right? We get a letter in the mail or a a card or something. What's the first thing we do before we even open it? We look at the return address. We want to know, who is it that's sending me a letter? Who is it that's sending me a card? I always uh, um, don't even put put my name on the return address. I have a tendency, I think I picked it up from my dad. I just list the the, the mailing address as a return address adds a little bit of mystery. They have to open the letter to figure out who it is. But, but we know that, right? We do that, and so they would are no different. And so authors of letters would often put themselves first. They would, they would say, put their name there at the top and who they are and, and what their credentials are. Go back and read um, the, some of Paul's letters, and you see Paul doing this a lot. And so here Jude has done this. I mean, the first word of the book of Jude is the, is the name Jude. But then he says who he is. He says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, there are two significant Jameses in the New Testament. Significant enough that he wouldn't have to provide any qualification for what James he's talking about. There's James, the son of Zebedee, James and John. And there's James, the brother of Jesus. And for various reasons, we know that the James to whom Jude is speaking is James the brother of Jesus. So that makes Jude what? The brother of Jesus. But note what he has done. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jude, I'm Jesus' brother. He goes, I am Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have any siblings, so I'm not sure. But for those of you who have siblings, how many of you would willfully, willingly call yourself their servant? But he's reminding them who he is, that he is a servant of Jesus. We also see to whom he is writing. He says, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. There is the possibility that Jude is writing this to a specific church. As you read through the book of Jude, it's pretty clear that he's talking about very certain sorts of issues. And so it would make sense that he's writing to a specific congregation. But he does not address it that way. You know, when Paul, in the beginning of Romans, he says, I'm Paul and I'm writing to the church in Rome. Or the same thing in, you know, Corinthians or Galatians. But Jude doesn't do that. Jude just says that this is to all of those who are called, loved by God, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's quite a list, isn't it? Called loved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. This is a this is a sequence. It's easy for us to sort of miss that this is a sequence. These people are all three of these things. They are called they're loved by God and they're kept for Jesus Christ. So this is to whom Paul is writing. So that's the who. And then Paul and then Jude, excuse me, Jude, Jude is writing. And then Jude gets to the what. Starting right there in verse Three, he says, He says, you know, I would love to have written to you about something else. I would have loved to have written to you about this thing that we share, this joy that we share together, the joy of our salvation. I would have loved to have written to you about that. But this thing has come up, and now I've got to address it. We're like that sometimes, aren't we? Sometimes we, we just want to come And hear the good stuff we just want to come in and 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 hear how good everything is and how much god loves us and how much jesus loves us and and the joy of our salvation and 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 go out and 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 be filled up and go out happier than we came in right and we understand that life is hard life is tough i I don't know what all of y'all have dealt with this week There's a strong possibility that, that you have dealt with hard stuff. There's a possibility that you have dealt with, with difficulties in your life, and you come in this morning and all you want to hear is the good stuff. But the problem with that is the bad stuff's not just out there the problem with coming and hearing only the good stuff is there's good stuff and there's bad stuff in life and if you were to come in and I were never to help you learn how to address the bad stuff I would be failing as the under shepherd wouldn't I because we can pray for God to lead us into beautiful pastures and beside still waters, but the truth of the matter is, most of the time, we're on broken, barren grazing land. And we need to know how to navigate it and how to get through it. If you were to man, and I were only to give you the good stuff, I would be setting you up for spiritual failure. I would be setting you up to be picked off by a wolf. And so Jude says, I, I wanted to write to you about the good stuff but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. That's an interesting word, contend, isn't it? It's it's not a construction that we would use a lot. But what he's saying is, I've written to you, I'm, I'm writing to you, so that you can struggle for the faith, so that you can defend the faith, so that you know the true faith from the false faith, so that you know how to walk, so that you, as sheep, know how to navigate the pastoral land, to struggle, to defend. But to defend what? To defend the faith once delivered, to, delivered to the saints once for all. You know, there are a lot of churches out there who claim what they call apostolic succession. An apostolic succession is as if you are in a, in a tradition that claims apostolic succession you can, if you are ordained, you can draw a line all the way back to Jesus. That's the idea of apostolic succession. That you were ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone, so on and so forth, all the way back to the apostles. To Jesus. And so that's what many have come to understand apostolic succession to be. It's it's interesting, in, in Dave's, my father-in-law's office, he's got this little, like, family tree, and it traces his line of ordination all the way back to, to John Wesley, the founder of, of Methodism, but also to, to the gentlemen who were the founders of the, the other tradition that had come into with the Methodist Church in 68, 69, to create the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical United Brethren um, tradition, and so he's got that up in his office. Someone did it, gave it to him as a, as a gift. The really funny thing about that is that since Dave was present at my ordination and since Dave laid hands on me at my ordination, don't tell his bishop, I can draw a line from myself all the way back to John Wesley and Jakob Albrecht and, and from John Wesley, using John Wesley's line of apostolic succession, supposedly all the way back to Peter. Kind of cool, but it means nothing. What true apostolic succession is, is what the Baptist church has, which is the preaching of the gospel that the same gospel that the apostles preached. You understand what I'm saying? That we we preach the same gospel. This is what Jude is talking about. When he's talking about apostolic succession. He's talking about preach the gospel that the apostles preached. Now, I want to be very clear. I think after two thousand years, there are probably some things that we have missed, some things that maybe we underemphasize or overemphasize. But I would hope that if any of the first generation of the church were to enter this congregation, they would hear a proclamation of the gospel that was at least familiar enough to them that they would know what it was. Assuming, of course, they spoke 21st century English and not just 1st century Aramaic. So he's saying contend for the faith, but not just any faith. Contend for the apostolic faith. Contend for the faith that the apostles gave us. Contend for the faith that Jesus gave us. Okay, but why? Why should we be concerned about contending for the faith? He goes on in in verse 4. For some people, for is one of those words that when you see it, pay attention. When you're reading your Bible and you see for, it means that that what comes after it is tied to what comes before it. We're really bad because because a medieval monk put these little numbers in front of each sentence. We're we're really bad sometimes at thinking of verses as as unique chunks. And they're not. They're tied together. And so when you see a word like for, or therefore, or because, just like you would in any other book, you go back and see what comes before. Contend for the faith. Why? Because... Some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. There are folks who have entered into the church. They have crept in. Entering by stealth. Here's the thing. If if someone comes in by stealth, the whole thing is you don't recognize that they've come in, right? I mean... That's, that's the whole purpose of, of stealth. Right? We just announced a, a next-generation stealth heavy bomber, the B-22. And a really cool thing, one of my high school friends worked on the program. But the whole purpose of this bomber, right, is to get over hostile airspace drop its payload, get out of hostile airspace, and no one will have even known that it was there until the payload hits the ground. That's that's the idea, right? You don't know that it's there. Anybody remember um, Spy vs. Spy? The little cartoon? Okay, I can tell some of you read Mad Magazine and some of you have never read Mad Magazine. But spy versus spy, right? It was these two spies fighting against each other. And I always always was frustrated because there was the black spy, and he was all in black, and there was the white spy, and he was all in white. I never understood why the black spy didn't always win. Because you could see the white spy a lot better. Because he wasn't very stealthy, dressed all in white. It also frustrated me. Sometimes he was dressed all in white, and it was... After Labor Day and before Easter, and that's just not done. But what Jude is saying is that these men have come in, these false teachers have come in by stealth. And so, what that means, brothers and sisters, is you don't recognize them. We talk about this sometimes when we talk about the devil. And when we talk about demons, we've got this thing from popular culture that when the devil shows up, we're going to know what he looks like. He's he's going to be red and have a tail and cloven hooves and horns. And Scripture tells us that he's beautiful. So those beautiful people in your life are much more like the devil and his demons than the ugly people in your life, which is a great relief for me. But that's, that's the idea, right? Because, because the devil is a liar. His whole, his whole shtick is, is based on misleading you. Is it really true that God said? That's the first thing the devil ever says in Scripture. And so these false teachers have come in by stealth. They've crept in under the dark of night and through denial and mocking of the gospel. are turning the grace of God into sensuality, are denying Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Master. If we turn over real quick to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is another book that deals with false teachers. We see some more in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. ungodly men who have crept in. But note specifically that Jude points out that their false teachings leads to a sensuality and a sexualizing of the gospel. That's an interesting interesting note to make, isn't it? Many scholars believe that these these false teachers that Jude is, is preaching against or what we would call antinomians. That's a really big, fancy word. What it means is this. What they preach is the gospel, the grace of God is so big, so powerful, that you are no longer under the moral law. You can do whatever you want. You can live any life you want because the grace of God covers it up. Does that sound familiar? Because there are a lot of folks these days who are preaching that same thing. If we were to jump to verse 11 real quick, I know we didn't read verse 11, but in verse 11 we have this this three-part description of these false teachers. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude is connecting these false teachers to three not terribly great figures from the, not just from the Old Testament, but specifically from the Torah, from the Pentateuch, from the books of Moses. Cain, we know, right? Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. Cain, who chose Wickedness over goodness. Cain, who confronted by God about his unworthy sacrifice, instead of repentance, gets angry and strikes out and kills his brother. Cain, who instead of repentance, when confronted by God, gets angry and strikes out and kills his brother. How dare you tell me I must worship God this way? How dare you tell me that I need to seek repentance? And so I shall arrive armed and shoot you. How dare you call me to repentance, God? They're plunged into Balaam's era. If you remember the story of Balaam, you probably remember his talking donkey. I'll use the non-King James version. But it's in Numbers 22 through 24. And and what we see here, what Jude is saying, is what Balaam, Balaam... is ministering only for money. He's in it for his paycheck. And we see later in the story of Balaam that he's actually killed fighting against Israel. He's not a a true servant of God. He's just in it for the money. Now, God uses him to deliver a message to his people. But he's, he's ministering only for money. He's only in it for the paycheck. So, those who have gone the way of Cain, thinking that repentance is not necessary, striking out in anger. Those who have plunged into Balaam's error of preaching for money. And finally, those who have perished in Korah's rebellion. It's interesting. This is also a story from Numbers, but it comes earlier in the story than from Numbers than Balaam does. Korah comes from about chapter 16, which is last I checked before 22. And so it's interesting that he would list them out of chronological order. But we must remember what the penalty of Korah and Korah's rebellion was. It was to be literally swallowed up by the earth. The punishment visited on Korah and his followers are significantly worse than the punishment visited upon Cain and Balaam. Korah's Sin was rebellion against God's appointed leaders, against Moses and Aaron. Korah's rebellion was that. It was rebellion against God. So we see these ungodly men who have crept into the church. They 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 carry an attitude of, of how dare you tell me how to worship. How dare you call me to repentance? They carry with them an attitude of, of preaching for pay only. They bring with them an, an attitude of rebellion against God and against God's ways. What I love about Jude is he starts with this I want, I want to bring you the good word of the salvation that we share but I've got to go through all of this other stuff and if you read the entirety of the book of Jude it's it's tough there's there's hard language in Jude but what I love about Jude is he says "I, I want to start with this joy of our salvation but he does end with it but you dear friends as you build yourself up he ends with this this call, this charge to the believer. It's our duty to build up in unity. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expectantly waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Build yourselves up, and in the process of building yourselves in your faith, you build the body of Christ in faith. There's a, a compassion for the lost. Have mercy on those who waver. We read in verse 22 and 23. Have, have mercy on those who waver. Snave others by snatching them from the fire. Have you ever had to snatch something from the fire? You know what it means, right? It means you got to stick your hand into the fire in order to snatch it out. It's one of these instinctual things that you do. We've got a fire pit in the backyard, and we love it. But fire pits and toddlers don't go together very well. So there have been some times that luckily he has not gotten in the fire, but he's gotten close to the fire, and there's just an instinct, right? Snatch him back. You see your kid running out into traffic, even if it's not your kid, you have an instinct. Snatch him back. Snatch him from the fire. But we also have a duty, so we have a duty to, to build up In faith, the unity of the body, we have a a duty to have compassion and evangelize the lost, but we also have a duty to have absolute confidence in Christ to keep us. Now, to Him who is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of His glory without blemish and with great joy. I don't know about you, but there's no way I can stand anywhere without blemish. except by the power of Christ. And so, there's absolute confidence. We have a duty to have absolute confidence in Christ to keep us. We have an absolute duty to render to God all allegiance and glory. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we must contend for the faith. We must. And these days, there are many out there who say things in the name of Jesus that are contradictory to his faith. And so my warning to you would be this. Just because someone utters the name of Jesus, do not take what they say to be the faith once delivered to the saints. In our contention for the faith, let us not be contentious with each other. In our contending for the faith, let us not be more narrow than we need to be. Same way, may we not be so wide that everything is permissible. We come to the table this morning because it is a table of our shared faith this is a, a meal I would be interested to see what the first generation of the church would think of the way we celebrate the table I would love to be corrected by them on the table we read earlier of the triumphal entry as I'm reading this from Matthew if our deacons could go ahead and come forward So I was reading of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem from the book of Matthew. I read now from Matthew chapter 26, as they were eating, Jesus took